The Australian Defence Magazine podcast. Serving the business of defence. With Grant McHeron and Ewan Levick. Hi everyone and welcome back to the show. This episode, we'll be chatting with Senator David Fawcett about his recent opinion piece on how we make risk assessment work effectively within defence. Senator Fawcett, welcome to the show. Thank you. And of course, this episode, I'm also joined by Ewan Levick, publisher at ADM Group. Ewan, welcome aboard. Thanks, Grant. So great to be here. Fantastic. Ewan, do you want to uh, open up with our questions for David? I will. So, David, we'll start with, the, I suppose, the identification of the problem or the diagnosis what is the issue with defence's identification of risk in acquisition and sustainment? Well, you and the problem is that for a number of decades, we've had defence projects that have sometimes gone off the rail. Not all. And uh, as Tony Fraser used to be at pains to point out in Senate estimates, many projects go well, and I, I acknowledge that and welcome that. But there have been some spectacular failures uh, within defence, and my concern at the moment is that as we have the strategic update that says that the scope and complexity of capability required for the Defence of Australia is increasing, the time frame that is available for procurement is decreasing, which means that we have to be a smart buyer, we have to make sensible decisions, which means we have to make risk-based decisions. And if that evaluation of risk is not competent and if it's not effectively uh, relayed to decision makers, then we're not really basing our procurement processes on a good evaluation of risk. And as we go back, uh, right back to the early 2000s with ANAO reports, with Senate reports, uh, with Mortimer and Kinnard, uh, through to later 2012 with the Senate 2015 with ANAO, there are three consistent themes that come out when they look at defence's assessment of risk and management of risk. And the first is having the difficulties defence has to consistently have a competent workforce who can actually be tasked to evaluate risk. And when I use the word competence there, it's important to understand task-specific competence and that the best analogy is that of a, a surgeon. If, if somebody's got a broken bone, you need an orthopaedic surgeon. But if you have a problem with a brain, you need a neurosurgeon. They're both surgeons, they're both highly competent, but it's a different job. And so an operational commander or perhaps an engineer who's a maintenance workshop manager who are very competent and accomplished in those roles don't necessarily have the skills to assess risk of a product that the defence is looking to purchase in terms of the certification and integration of the force in being. The second is around whether or not uh, individual projects or post-first principles review when the capability managers and their staff are setting the requirements whether they engage professional test and evaluation staff right at that requirement setting stage, which is the, the first element of a systems engineering approach to test and evaluation around requirement setting. And we've seen some projects go horribly off the rails because people haven't engaged folk who understand how you translate operational requirements into the things that manufacturers understand that will be accepted in terms of the data for certification. Uh, so that that's a really important step. And the third area is even when people are tasked to assess risk and produce reports, you can go back through ANAO reports through particularly the 2012 Senate report and there's a litany of projects where the risk has been assessed and people within 
DAO, DMO, now CASG, uh, right through to the investment committee, may not actually pass awareness of that risk up to the next level. And so by the time it comes to the National Security Committee of Cabinet, it's like, yes, Minister, it's all green lights. Whereas when you trace it back, and you know the NAO has done a good job of this, you're know, tracing right back, uh, you'll find people on the shop floor going, there's a red light. And then, you know, the Chinese walls, whispers, processes, conspiracy of optimism, you name it, biases come through. And before you know it, somebody says, we don't need to pass that up because we think we can handle it. Um, so there are three consistent themes that have continued through. And as we look at the 2021 defence test and evaluation strategy, uh, the problem set it describes uh, in terms of the broadening scope and workforce and coordination, et cetera, uh, is almost identical to the problem set that was described in 2008 with the test and evaluation roadmap for defence. And the solutions, again, are very, very similar. And that raises concerns for me that we have not actually resolved the problem sets, nor have we come up with new solutions. And so we need to look at a better way to make this really critical part of our governance of procurement and making sure that warfighters get what they think they're getting and things that they can literally, you know, stake their lives on, uh, that we know the procurement process is going to buy what we're expecting. So you've mentioned there about the test and evaluation engineering process, which is very good for identifying risks, but it seems it's not so much the process itself, it's the reporting upwards and the dealing with what that process has come up with. Is that correct? Uh, well, it's still a mixture of both. The reporting is is a key part of it. Uh, but the discretion which is afforded to individuals within what is now CASG or indeed within the service headquarters to decide whether or not they need to do risk assessment uh, is actually one of the, the consistent themes that comes through. And I'll give you an example. When people think that a project is an off-the-shelf project, uh, purchasing it from a, another military power that we trust and we think it's off-the-shelf, the problem is project managers will often say, well, we don't need to do a risk assessment because our allies are using it, therefore it's good and we'll be fine. But we have found, you know, lightweight, lightweight torpedo is a classic example where uh, they rejected the need to do test and evaluation. The experts in the field, uh, the Aircraft Stores Compatibility Engineering Agency said, you've at least got to do a fit check. And the project was like, no, we'll be fine. Uh, well, guess what? It didn't actually fit in the P3 Orion. Uh, so there's, you know, there's some classic cases. Um, there's uh, other examples of where people have said it's off the shelf, we don't need to do it. And in many cases, that is true. In many cases, we can accept the limitations and the mission profiles look very similar. But a, a point that I would argue now is that following on from the 2012 Senate report, Defence accepted that they should do what we call preview or pre-contract assessment of risk. Uh, even for off-the-shelf products, and the ANAO audit in 2015 confirmed that that should happen but has not been happening. And as we look at things like the Apache, uh, which the government is now talking of buying, and it's a great battlefield helicopter, but you have to ask the question, is the mission profile we are looking at the same as what the Americans use? And the fact is we want to use it for both battlefield operations and operating off ships, and the Americans use uh, the Cobra for their Marine Corps operating off ships for good reason. Uh, and if you look at the operations that the US forces and the British have done uh, with the Apache off ships, they tend to be very large ships. Uh, the Americans currently in the Gulf are using 
essentially a design that was an oil tanker with a great big platform that only has four spots. And when the British deployed the Apache in Libya, uh, it was on uh, HMS Ocean and it was in a season where the winds were normally only about 4.3, which is less than 10 knots with one-foot waves. So it was a very stable platform. Uh, but if you go back and look what the manufacturer of the Apache said when the Americans were first looking at having a sea Apache, they said, well, the undercarriage is too narrow, doesn't have enough tie-down points, it needs better blade fold, uh, there's a whole range of things that it needed, and particularly if you look at the night pilotage aspect, uh, there are concerns around the uh, PNVS, the IHAD system, uh, which is a monocular system with the sensor geographically displaced from the pilot with a fairly low-resolution display. So all of those things mean that it might still be the right aircraft to buy, but we should evaluate what risks does it pose to our intended use and will there be additional training or equipment or modifications required so that we can factor that into both the budget, we can factor that into the land commander's view of how and when, uh, what kind of sea states and conditions they can expect to be able to use the aircraft, even right through to reputational risk. If, if the purchase goes ahead with none of that evaluation being done, and in three years' time they have problems when they're doing what they call the first-class flight trials, then people will again turn around and go, gee, doesn't Defence know what they're doing? They've bought another lemon. Whereas if up front people went, this is the best aircraft to buy, but here are some issues we know we're going to have to work on, everyone will go, yeah, okay, we may have to spend a bit more money, we have to moderate our expectations, but we know what we're doing. So for a whole raft of reasons, you do need to do that risk assessment even for off-the-shelf products. David, can you describe then your proposal for a Defence Capability Assurance Agency? How would it operate um, in terms of assurance, but also in terms of its leadership and its transparency? Sure. So again, if you look at issues raised by the ANAO, if you look at issues raised through the first principles review, one of the consistent themes is around arm's length or independence uh, of assessment. And what we see at the moment is that we have... A number, and I think the, the latest report indicates there are 12 different agencies or groups within defence who do some form of formalised test and evaluation, but there's vast swathes of uh, defence capability. Uh, if you go across the land and joint and other areas where there are no specialised units that do it and you tend to find people just posted in uh, and they might do a short course and then they're expected to provide robust risk assessment. Uh, so if you look at what the Americans did in contrast, uh, incidentally, it was in that period between when we had the 2002 and 2015 ANAO report, their Congress facing a similar conundrum said, you know what, we're actually going to legislate. And they did it under Title 10, which would be like us amending the Defence Act of 1903. It's sort of the, the basis of law under which the Defence Department operates. They said we must have independent test and evaluation for capability and they must report to Congress, not just within the Department of Defence. Uh, and so that's their approach to it. The British took a different approach. They actually have an industry player, Kinetic, who has a long-term partnering agreement. That provides an element of independence, but it also enables them to draw on a, a deeper reservoir, if you like, of, of skills, people who may have not only been an operator or an engineer but have become a professional test and evaluation person who can then keep building on those skills and that way you can front load projects very quickly by surging 
deep capability at those very early requirement setting stages of projects. So all of these pieces are largely in place, but what we don't have is the coordination and the independence, nor the assurance of the competence of the workforce. So the proposal is not to create another whole new layer of process. We actually have more process. You've got enough to sink a battleship at the moment or in current parlance, possibly exceed the weight margins of a modern warship. Um, so we have process, we have policy, we actually have people, uh, we have organisations, but they're not independent and there's not an assurance of the competence of the staff uh, to task-specific competencies and there's not the assurance of that reporting schedule. So I think the proposal for this agency is largely saying let's make it, group them together, make it independent, engage industry as a key partner so that we have an agency who will be accountable to the minister and to the parliament, will report to defence, will have defence people as part of it, but they're not subject to the the influences, whether intended or unintended, of, of the command chain and the approach that sometimes changes outcomes in the current setup. So you're looking at a new agency, uh, but Defence already has DASA, the Defence Aviation Safety Authority. Seems to work pretty well. They get people in, uh, make sure they're trained and qualified before they're using them, but they don't report to the minister. Is that the key element here uh, that would separate out from having a new agency within or a new component within Defence or doing what the, the British have done with setting up an agreement with an external group that already does T&E and risk assessment and so on? Well, DASA is the example I use as to how we address the competence issue. So whether you're an Army, Navy, Air Force, Defence, civilian or contractor, if you want to work on an aircraft uh, in the defence environment, your qualifications and your experience is assessed uh, and the amount of delegated authority you can exercise is then uh, determined by the the regulator. Uh, They then have ongoing audit process as well as uh, ongoing training. They have a, an additional workforce, if you like, of deep engineering expertise and things like aerostructures and, and other things that engineers may need to draw on. And that works very well in the aviation environment. But test and evaluation, uh, the risk assessment for procurement has to go across land, air, maritime, space, joint. Uh, there's a whole range of areas. And so the DASA model is a good model, but it's not going to be applicable in that organisation, if you like, for the whole of test and evaluation that's required. So I think the the idea would be to take essentially what is the Defence Test and Evaluation Office, which has been set up, make that you know the, the core, if you like, of the new agency. I then see the role for the industry partners to bring their deep expertise in as the regulator so that DAS are equivalent for risk assessment to work as part of that agency uh, to assist in terms of the provision of of training, of auditing, of uh, approving people in the roles, but also the ability to surge workforce. And that way, Defence has the option to have uniformed people, to have Defence civilians, to have any number of contractors actually doing test and evaluation, but they're all now working to a common standard. Uh, and the other missing piece, I think, that is there is where you look at that constant reporting through these um, reviews of defence procurement where a risk has been identified but not passed up the chain. You know, probably the, the most egregious case of that was C-Sprite, uh, where some of those risks were actually identified well before the project, you know, really got got a, a head of steam. Uh, and they were the reasons at the end why the project failed and yet nobody had taken account 
of the risk that had been identified because it wasn't sort of consistent with the narrative that people at the time were wanting to push. And so if we're going to make sure that those are transparent, uh, that the model we have at the moment uh, is from the national intelligence community, and much of my work in the parliament has been through the Intelligence and Security Committee, where we have the Inspector General of Intelligence and Security, a small office, uh, who have every clearance under the sun, top secret, every compartment you can imagine, and they do ongoing audits and specific investigations into uh, whether it's ASIO or ASIS or ASD to make sure that our agencies who are appropriately working in you know behind um, high levels of classification with very little transparency to the public, the public can be assured that they're doing the right thing because they have an agency who investigates and who reports both to the minister and to the parliament. And so that model, I think, would be the appropriate one to apply. wouldn't have to be big, but it could have the, the clearances and the ability to come back and go, yep, every project that's going through that's you know, a significant project, they have engaged appropriate uh, risk and evocation through this new agency and it has been reported at each of the decision-making levels within CASG at the Investment Committee and at the National Security Committee of Cabinet. Because ultimately, if we're going to be a smart buyer, which is what the first principles review said we needed to be, we need to actually make decisions that are informed by competent assessment of risk. David, would the Defence Capability Assurance Agency, um, in your view, be involved in assessing the primary risk uh, of a decision by government or capability managers to acquire a certain capability, i.e. when Scott Morrison wakes up one day and decides to buy nuclear-powered submarines, does he go to the DCAA first and say, what's the risk? The role of the contestability uh, group within defence is something, again, the first principles review uh, formed. You know, we used to have in the past uh, FDA, Forces of Darkness and Annihilation, we used to jokingly call them, that would... Um, can projects, but now there's more robust process in place, uh, which is the contestability area. Um, but and, and they provide that function. But interestingly, uh, one of the things that they have told me is that a large part of their work is trying to understand from a technical risk perspective whether the people who are giving them opinions on risk are actually competent to provide that assessment. Uh, so I would see that that contestability group would continue to do what you're talking about, but their job would be made far easier if they had an assurance that the people who are evaluating risk actually understood uh, what they were talking about. So sounds like a pretty good reason to have this new agency. Oh, it's a new agency. We've got to find the money. What's your estimate of how much this is likely to cost to set up? It's not going to just miraculously happen. So how, how big's the bucket for it? Well, I think you get a pretty good idea of the bucket by looking at the fact that we already have the Defence Test and Evaluation Office, uh, I think currently led by Brigadier, uh, staff there, staff in those 12 groups that we talked about, uh, as well as each individual project already employs a Test and Evaluation Manager uh, and staff. There's contracting work. So between recurrent costs for things like the DTEO and those units and individual project costs, uh, and bear in mind some of our many, many papers over the years that have uh, articulated policy around test and evaluation uh, made the point that of the budget for the project, up to 25%, you know, that's an eye-watering figure, up to 25% of the budget 
should be allocated for test and evaluation uh, in the wording of the document at the time, it was if there are a lot of electronics involved. Well, these days, you know, that's essentially software and almost everything we buy has a lot of software. And so if on a project-by-project project basis there was an assessment of, you know, this is developmental, has a lot of software, therefore we probably do need 20% of this project's budget, or this is something like, for example, the Seahawk, uh, our mission profile is very similar to the U.S., you know, we're happy to accept and lock into their spiral upgrade path. Therefore, the risk profile is probably very low. Then you'd only take a very small amount in your planning for tests from that. But the budget is already there, largely speaking. This is about how do we make that spend effective consistently uh, and inform the decision makers. David, through the conversation, I've been thinking that what essentially you're proposing to enact is in some ways a culture shift within the department. So if someone at a you know one level is saying this is a red light and somehow that light becomes green by the time it makes it to the top, that is essentially asking people to undertake a bit of a fundamental rethink of how they go about their jobs. To do that, this agency would then have to have some kind of teeth. Is that accurate? What sort of teeth would, would the DCAA have to enforce what it sees as appropriate or inappropriate risk? I don't actually see it would have teeth in the way and enforcing things, to use the word you've used. I see it's a lot about transparency and sunlight in that if the decision-making points within CASG Investment Committee and NSC are aware that a risk has been identified as opposed to it being buried along the way, then they can ask questions of the capability manager and say, well, it, it appears to us from the brief we've received that there is a risk associated with what you're intending to do. And if the capability manager is aware of the risk, believes that the capability is still worth having and has a way to mitigate the risk and to justify why we should proceed, then to my mind, that is the call that the capability manager should be able to make because they are the one ultimately that are providing military response options to government. What we don't want is for them to be blissfully coming before government saying, this is the best option, let's go for it, not knowing that down the chain some of their people at the shop floor have been saying the baby is ugly and we need to do something about it. Uh, and we have just seen so many projects over the years, and again, not all, but there have been enough significant ones and I've seen within the last couple of years uh, those same issues occurring where people think they understand the risk, but they don't have that task-specific competence to really analyse what a manufacturer is claiming in the glossy brochure. Uh, and you have to remember, for, for someone, for example, who's an engineer coming from a, a maintenance world, the manufacturer is like God. You know, what they say about the product is what you follow. Um, there's very little latitude there. And so if a manufacturer has a glossy brochure that says, you know, this thing is fantastic, and we'll do everything you want and more, uh, for many people it's like, well, what further proof do we need? Whereas people who've been involved in the whole process of testing assertions, of testing data and providing a pack to a regulator who's going to certify can pretty quickly start testing the assumptions and the basis of data that's provided. Uh, and we've seen this in, in projects even going back, for example, to Air 87, the TIGER program, where the reports that were coming out of the Air Force's ARDU uh, unit at the time were saying, 
this aircraft is not off the shelf and mature. There are a whole bunch of areas that are not yet actually certified. And yet that's not the message that was reaching government. Uh, and if it had, then they wouldn't have needed to enforce anything, you and to your point. The sunlight on that would have been enough for people to go, well, okay, perhaps it is still the right aircraft to buy, but we need to make provision to extend the contracts for things like the Iroquois gunships and others whilst we resolve these issues, and then expectations and budgets would have been set appropriately uh, to proceed. Or it may be in the case like the Sea Sprite, people would have gone, you know what, let's just kill this right now rather than spending over a billion dollars that we got no outcome for. David, you've mentioned the Australian National Audit Office, uh, the ANAO. They're doing a lot of work to find problems and so on. So what's the overlap between this new agency and that office? So Grant, the Audit Office does a great job, but their work is backward looking. They tend to look back at a project and say, what happened? What went right? What went wrong? What can we learn from those things that went wrong? The whole concept of test and evaluation as part of a systems engineering V, right from setting requirements through to type acceptance, is it's real time. This is getting ahead of and being part of the decision-making loop so that those decisions are informed. And if that process works well, the audit office will look back and go, what a good job you've done. Uh, so the two uh, are connected but temporarily in terms of time, they are displaced. The audit office looks back. The risk assessment is real time. Well, this has been a great chat, David. Um, is there anything else you'd like to say, a question that we haven't asked, or are you happy with uh, what we've got here? I guess the concluding comment would be that there are lots of people within defence who are working very hard, who are very competent at what they do within the defence organisations that do do test and evaluation. There are many competent hardworking people and I, I greatly respect the work they've done. But as an organisation, uh, constant reports have indicated that there has been an in inability to consistently have a workforce that has sufficient depth and scale to work across each of the projects and particularly as we now move into more and more joint systems of systems projects, there has been a uh, lack of accountability to make sure that those areas that need risk assessment, that suitable, competent people are tasked to assess the risk, and there has been a lack of assurance that that's been visible the whole way up the decision chain. Uh, a bit like our parliament is a mix of uh, the American system and the British system, you know, Washminster, as some people joke about it. I think to have uh, the American approach of legislating for a statutory independent body but also engaging industry uh, in that role of a regulator, equivalent to DASAR, who provides that depth of expertise in the field, that audit of uh, competence for people who are working in the field, provides then defence and the taxpayer an assurance that the procurement process is underpinned by robust, informed, independent risk assessment. Fantastic. Well, Senator David Fawcett, thank you so much for coming on the show. And this has been a really great chat about uh, making sure we get, trying to get risk right and done more effectively within defence projects. Agreed. Thanks, David. Thanks, Jens. Thanks to everyone for listening once again. And don't forget, if you enjoyed this episode, you can tell a colleague about us so they too can benefit from this show. Meanwhile, thanks for tuning in and we'll be back in the not too distant future with another informative episode. The ADM Podcast is produced by Southern Skies Media on behalf of Australian Defence Magazine, a Yaffa Media title. 
The views of the people appearing on this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of Australian Defence Magazine, the Department of Defence or the guest's employer. If you wish to use any of the audio in this podcast, please contact Australian Defence Magazine via their website, australiandefence.com.au or via email at defmag at yaffa.com.au. You've been listening to a Yappa Media Podcast. Southern Skies Media.